Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 273. Today's topic is regenerative agriculture. So I've always said on the Climate Report that our job is to help uh, you separate rhetoric from reality. You know, what are people saying versus what is the underlying reality of what they want to do? Both business leaders and political leaders and people in the media. What is the rhetoric versus what is the reality? And we've been reading through Biden's climate plan and it's like, what is it in that plan that is a real solution? And what parts of it are just, you know, playing to Wall Street, playing to the donors? You know, there are a lot, there's lots that we need to do in the world, and there's just a big, huge, large, gigantic difference between what we need to do and versus what is being sold to us. So there are solutions, there are climate solutions that are real solutions, and then there are climate solutions that make a profit for somebody. <clears throat> and you know, we've been sold a an ideology called the free market system or the free enterprise system. And the idea is that private ambition leads to public good. So we've been taught that whatever makes a profit has to be good with minor exceptions. And we have regulations to deal with all that. But actually, <clears throat> there's a huge disconnect between what is actually good for people and what is profitable for a few people who happen to own a business and happen to want to sell us something. So we've been talking about false solutions that are not real solutions at all. Uh, false solutions, including especially those in the Biden climate plan, include <clears throat> you know, blind reliance on technology. Technology is problematic. And just because, you know, apart from the environmental cost, I mean, look at the pitfalls in technology related to, you know, ch the children using technology or surveillance that we have, you know, the government and private corporations that want to collect all of our data. And that way they know what we're doing. And, you know, we have all this warrantless searching of our phones, warrantless searching of our laptops. And there is a breed of so-called climate activists, there's a breed of so-called environmental activists that just want to put all of that on steroids. We want to have more technology that has all the environmental pollution that goes along with it. We want to have more technology that we don't control. We want to have more technology that is sponsored by the taxpayer, but the taxpayer doesn't get a fair return on that investment, and the taxpayer ends up not being able to control the technology once it's in the hands of a private corporation and the private corporations are in bed with the government so that if the government wants to get access to our private information all they have to do is call up the these uh, private tech companies that have our information and if anybody thinks I'm being paranoid I'm have to ask you know does the name Edward Snowden mean anything to you uh, do you really know the story of Edward Snowden and what he revealed? Does the name Julian Assange mean anything to you? Do you really know the story of Julian Assange and what he has tried to reveal and how the government 
Both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are persecuting him for exercising his right to freedom of the press. So I'm just saying let's not blindly worship technology and let's not charge into so-called supposedly technological solutions to climate change before we know who benefits from this technology. And, you know, is this technology really going to solve the problems we're trying to solve? You know, electric cars involve technology. Solar energy involves technology. Wind power involves technology. There's a state-of-the-art electric grid that they want to do that involves technology, like, you know, smart thermostats in your home, um, you know, smart refrigerators, and how many of these quote-unquote solutions are not solutions at all? And many of these supposed solutions involve what I call a confusion of priorities. So there are priorities that are real, there are high priorities, and then there are medium to low priorities. High priorities should mean stop deforestation right now. High priorities should include reduce defense by 90%. High priorities should include reduce air travel by 90%. If you really want to look at the cost, the benefits, and the alternatives to air travel, then we would reduce air travel by 90%. We would therefore need to, we would be able to reduce the manufacture of new airplanes by 90%. We would be able to reduce the manufacture of new cars by 90%. So these are real solutions. And one thing that happens, if we lay hold of the real solutions, then we will be getting our freedom back, if we ever had it. You know, the powers that be have never been interested in giving freedom to the working class. We could be getting our freedom back, but some of these so-called climate solutions are actually paving the way to more human bondage without solving the problem that they were supposed to solve to begin with. So let's look for real solutions to the climate crisis and let's make those real solutions top priority. One of the very real solutions is regenerative agriculture. And we're gonna talk about regenerative agriculture and what all it involves. This is exciting stuff because we could be getting nutritious food. We could be getting tasty, nutritious fruit, food from local farms. I live in Kentucky, uh, on the border of the on the border with Indiana. Kentucky and Indiana have, you, you know, some of the most fertile soil in the nation, and yet we import many of our fruits and vegetables from California. Kentucky and Indiana also have plenty of water. We have plenty of water, 40 inches of rain per year. We have plenty of water to grow our food. We should be growing most of our food right here. Furthermore, we have an environment in which cattle are adapted. Out west, cattle are an invasive species. Out west, cattle are destroying the ecosphere. Cattle are destroying 
the ecosystems out west. On a recent episode, I read a portion of a book called This Land by Christopher Ketchum, and he's talking about this bullhog, which is a piece of heavy machinery that is designed to just chew up the forest. So here's a forest, and this bullhog comes in, and in nothing flat, it can chew up the forest, turn it into wood chips, and shoot the wood chips at its back end. This is industrialized destruction of the biosphere. This is industrialized destruction of the planet that we're depending on for our life. So one of the top priorities for solving the problem of climate change ought to be to take things like that bullhog and just say no. We're not going to destroy our forests on an industrialized basis anymore. And that particular bullhog was destroying the forest so you could put cattle on it so the cattle could graze. So let's just destroy an ecosystem so we can, you know, grow cattle. And they're growing cattle in a way that in, involves, you know, these big ranchers. And, you know, this is not a small family farm. It might be family owned, some of them. But it's a system that concentrates wealth in the hands of a very few while depriving the great many, including you and me, of an ecosystem, of a biosphere. So that is one of the many problems with industrialized agriculture. It's just complete disrespect for the ecosystems that we depend on. We depend on our ecosystems. We depend on bees, butterflies, and birds. Because for one thing, bees, butterflies, birds, bats, uh, beetles, even ants and flies are pollinators. We depend on pollinators for our food, but we also depend on pollinators for our oxygen. If we don't have plants, then plants can't make our, so plants make all of our oxygen. Most plants need to be pollinated. And most plants that need to be pollinated are pollinated by animals such as bees, butterflies, birds, bats, beetles, flies, wasps, and um, ants. Some things are pollinated by wind, but most of the plants in this world cannot reproduce without pollinators, and most pollinators are animals. So we need to uh, reserve, preserve the ecosystems that all that depends on. Instead, industrialized agriculture just wants to have one crop as far as the eye can see, corn as far as the eye can see, and we're going to till up all this ground, and we're going to let the rains wash that tilled soil into the waterways. We're going to you know, plant genetically modified seeds that are expensive for farmers, and we're going to use pesticides, and we're going to use fertilizers. Pesticides are going to kill off the weeds, and they're going to kill, which are also wildflowers. Pesticides are going to kill off the insects, which include bees and butterflies. Many of these pesticides are neurotoxins, which are harmful to humans. Many of these pesticides are carcinogens, which are harmful to humans. And none of this is necessary for agriculture. None of this is necessary to grow food. None of this is necessary to grow food productively. 
organic farming, regenerative farming is in many respects at least as productive, is in most respects at least as productive as the toxic type of farming that wants to just get a short-term gain, a short-term yield, the future be damned, the waterways be damned, the pollinators be damned. So let's read through an excellent book called Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food by Timothy A. Wise. Got about eight items here, and then either this episode or the next episode, we'll get to some really valuable information from USDA on agroforestry. In other words, how to include trees in our farming systems. So item number one from Eating Tomorrow, it said the world loses 25 million acres of cropland each year as some 80% of agricultural land suffers from moderate to severe erosion. So which of our agricultural land does not suffer from moderate to severe erosion? It, you know, you, there is such thing as no-till farming. You can do farming without tilling up the soil. But almost all industrialized farming involves tilling up the soil. And because we till up the soil, that's why, according to this book, Eating Tomorrow, we are losing 25 million acres of cropland each year. So there is a better way. There is a way to do farming in such a way that's more biologically diverse, and we need farming that's biologically diverse because when our plants and animals grow in an environment that's biologically diverse, they have more nutrition in them. You know, think of, a, think of corn that grows on soil that has been depleted. You know, that, that depleted soil is only going to have so much nutrition in it. Living soil has lots of nutrition. But dead soil does not have very much nutrition. So we can either have policies that encourage big industrialized farming, or we can have policies that encourage small farms that are organic and regenerative and biologically diverse. I can assure you the Biden climate plan does not touch that with a 10-foot pole. It makes brief mention to farmers and it gives lip service to farmers. But if you read between the lines, they're staying away from offending the agribusiness giants that sell all the inputs. So farmers are among the few businesses in the world that have to buy at retail and sell at wholesale. They have to buy these expensive inputs. They feel like they have to buy genetically modified seeds. They feel like they have to buy synthetic fertilizers. They feel like they have to buy, you know, uh, pesticides that are neurotoxins to kill the insects. And these agribusiness giants that sell to the farmers, well, that's big business. And they've got Congress in their pocket. That's why Biden's climate plan has all of these, what I consider to be false solutions, when, you know, the real solutions are right there. 
but you know the real solutions don't involve making a lot of money for Wall Street. The real solutions don't involve making a lot of money for plutocrats. The plutocrats are the people who already have a lot of money and you know there's lots of government policies that help plutocrats get richer and there's you know climate plans that are going to help the plutocrats get richer but they won't solve the problem of climate change and they uh, whereas many of the problems that do many of the solutions that do actually solve the problem of climate change yes they create wealth but they create wealth for the many not the few the the agriculture farming related solutions to climate change they create wealth for small family farmers and farmers that do regenerative agriculture but they don't create a lot of wealth for the big agribusiness giants like agra uh, you know conagra and monsanto and archer daniels midland these are companies that stand to lose a whole lot if we get serious about regenerative agriculture. Item number two, industrialized agriculture overuses synthetic fertilizer on monocropped agricultural lands and is causing acidification, reducing organic matter and soil microbial diversity. So the farming of the future, the climate-smart farming of the future, acknowledges that soils should be living soils. The soil can have a lot of life in it. The soil can have a lot of uh, bacterial life. The soil can have life in terms of fungi, specifically mycorrhizal fungi, and these are all vital components of a living system that can not only produce nutritious food, but can also help sequester carbon from the air. The Biden climate plan talks about you know, sequestering carbon using technological means and mechanical means, and then you're going to supposedly store this carbon underground hope it doesn't get out, hope it doesn't get loose, and we're doing all that. When we allow the powers that be to store carbon underground, we're allowing them to kick the can down the road. Carbon is only one part of our problem. We don't want the powers that be to play games with our biosphere while fooling us into thinking that just because we're dealing with carbon, then we're dealing with climate, and just because we're dealing with carbon and climate, we're dealing with nature. You can deal with carbon and climate. You can, you can, deal, you can reduce carbon without really doing much for the climate, and you can, uh, you can deal with the climate while still destroying the biosphere. So we don't want to do that. We don't want the powers that be to lead us down a path where we deal, where we decarbonize, supposedly. We're not even going to do that with many of these plans that they have. It's talk about decarbonization without actually doing any decarbonization. 
So what we're saying here is that we're overusing synthetic fertilizer, which is devastating to the ability of their soils to store carbon. In fact, carbon is released into the atmosphere when we deforest and clear the land for crops and livestock and kill the, the, kill the biota in the soil, kill the living organisms within the soil. All of that is devastating to the ability of the soils to store carbon. We need to store carbon in the soils and we're not going to do that by using industrialized agriculture. Item number three, half or more of synthetic fertilizers is not taken up by crops but ends up in the waterways. So these synthetic fertilizers end up in the waterways or in the groundwater. It's toxic pollution. We need to stop doing that. We need to stop killing our biosphere through short-sighted polluting industries, not least of all industrialized agriculture. For example, when we pollute the water, we're polluting our drinking water. When we pollute the water, we're putting, you know, carcinogens and neurotoxins into our, and, and, and toxic metals into our drinking water. So we can't safely drink the water. Even bottled water has a lot of this crap in it. So we can't safely drink the water. We can't safely eat the fish. Item number four, we're reading through some points from, um, presented in a book called Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food by Timothy A. Wise with a foreword by Raj Patel. Raj Patel is my man. If you want to check out more by Raj Patel, look at Stuffed and Starved and also The History of the World and Seven Cheap Things. And if you don't want to read what Raj Patel has written, then look him up on YouTube. He's a joy, and uh, he's a joy to learn from and to listen to. Item number four, much of the excess of these synthetic fertilizers is, uh, is emitted as nitrous oxide, one of the most damaging greenhouse gases. So carbon dioxide is not the only greenhouse gas. Nitrous oxide is a very damaging greenhouse gas, and that's why we can't be narrowly focused on carbon as if carbon is climate and climate is nature. Climate change is a symptom. It is not the disease. It's a very serious symptom, but if we treat the symptom and don't treat the underlying causes, then we will not win this game. If we address climate, but we do not look at biological diversity or the biosphere, then we will not win this game. We can decarbonize and, and still kill off all the life that we depend on. There are lots of people that want to sell us gadgets and gizmos, but they don't understand the biosphere. So the Biden climate plan says a little bit, a precious little, about farming. And what he does is say, we're going to give you a gadget. 
and that gadget is called a digester and the digester is designed to take in organic matter and let it digest and let it put off methane which is a fuel it's a usable fuel and I'm not saying that doesn't have its place but it's one of those things that for one thing it's a fix it's a technological fix and um, there, there's so much else that could be done with agriculture that has nothing to do with gadgets and gizmos and technological fixes. For example, let's say you have a farm with genetically modified corn. So they, you know, get, they, get, they buy the genetically modified seeds from Monsanto, and then they, uh, this corn is genetically modified to be Roundup resistant. Roundup is an herbicide. So when you spray the herbicide on, on, uh, in the corn rows, it kills the weeds, but not the corn. And then you also use insecticides. So you're using insecticides and you're using herbicides. You're killing the bees and butterflies and the birds, and you're killing, uh, you're, you're, you're killing the weeds. And then you end up with all this organic matter left over. So you take the corn and you make it into genetically, you, you take the corn and make it into high fructose corn syrup, or you take the corn and make it into corn ethanol. And then you take the corn shucks and the corn stalks and you put it into this digester, which over the course of time makes methane. That digester only solves one itty bitty problem. The problem it solves is how to capture the, um, the methane that comes from the decomposition of the corn stalks. Meanwhile, you're ignoring the fact that you're using all these pesticides to kill the bees, the butterflies, the birds, and the wildflowers. And at the end of the day, you've solved one little problem while creating more problems and uh, perpetuating a system that is fundamentally sick and broke. Item number five, overuse of pesticides and herbicides is leaving the soil lifeless. And the broadcast spraying of herbicides on herbicide tolerant genetically modified crops is undermining the diversity of surrounding ecosystems and breeding superweeds resistant to treatment. So you spray all this stuff, some of which is a, you know, Roundup glyphosate is a proven carcinogen. So it causes cancer. Some of these insecticides are proven neurotoxins. They're, they're neurotoxins. That's why they kill insects. And in killing insects, we're contributing to the sixth great extinction. So on the climate report, I've always said that climate is one of three things that could do us in. One of the other two things is biological diversity, the rapid loss of biological diversity. It's been called the sixth great extinction. We are losing species more rapidly than at any time in the history of the Earth since 65 million years ago. When the dinosaurs died 65 million years ago, that was the last time we lost species at the rate at which we are currently losing species. And this is occurring for many reasons, but not least of all, insecticides. So we have a form of agriculture that is dependent upon insecticides. It need not be that way. We can show that 
you know, you don't have to have insecticides to have a productive uh, crop. Organic farming can be shown to be at least as productive as this nonsense that we have going on now. What we have going on now, it is what it is because it's helpful to a few people. It helps concentrate a lot of money into a very few hands and it doesn't serve any other purpose. So we'll continue on the next episode with regenerative farming. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or observations, please email me at info at theclimatereport.net. That's info at theclimatereport.net. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 274. Today's topic is regenerative agriculture. This is an exciting topic because, you know, we could be kind to the earth and be kind to our local economies, be kind to the people who grow our food and grow tasty, nutritious, healthy, local food. We could do that. We have the opportunity to do that. Unfortunately, that's not how, mainly how food is grown today. Let's continue reading through this handy-dandy list of quotes from Eating Tomorrow, Agribusiness, Family Farmers, and the Battle for the Future of Food. The first seven items included loss of cropland due to erosion, overuse of synthetic fertilizers, uh, too much of our synthetic fertilizers ending up in the waterways, uh, synthetic fertilizers ending up as nitrous oxide, which is a potent greenhouse gas, overuse of insecticides, the uh, broadcast spraying of herbicides that kill weeds, which are actually wildflowers, which support the bees, butterflies, and birds. Item number seven is uh, overusing fresh water for irrigation of crops that we arguably don't need. Two-thirds of fresh water is used for intensive meat production or intensive commodity crop production and it drains the aquifers, it drains the groundwater. Item number eight says that while many warn that the spread of meat-based diets in developing countries will prove unsustainable, the truth is that overproduction and overconsumption of meat and dairy products in more developed countries is the real environmental threat. In other words, the way we grow meat here in the U.S. of A. is terrible for climate, terrible for water, and um, so what we need to understand is, okay, with all due respect to vegans, if you're a vegan because uh, you, you're ethically opposed to killing animals, then fine, I respect that. But if some people are vegans because they think it's the best thing to do ecologically, and I have to disagree with that part. You know, good farming is biomimicry. Biomimicry is when we mimic the biome. Good farming, I mean, biomimicry is where the farming mimics nature. 
And if you look at nature, nature always includes animals. One thing that nature always includes is animals eating insects. So like you have, you know, chickens <laughs> eat insects. When chickens are allowed to come behind the cows, then the chickens uh, serve as a pesticide. You know, birds eat insects. That's one of the main things that birds need to survive is insects. Or backing up to a bigger picture, once upon a time, prior to about 200 years ago, we had lots and lots of buffalo, lots and lots of bison on the continent. The bison is a kind of cow. So the bison would come along and they would come through and they would poop on the grass and then they would move on. And the grass would have a chance to grow back stronger than ever because they worked in the seeds and they you know, trampled on the poop. And uh, even the cattle urine had its place in the ecosystem. So, but they moved on. Whereas the way most cattle are grazed today, they keep on grazing, grazing, grazing on the same place. And they keep on grazing, grazing, grazing on a place that's probably too dry for cattle. Now, in, I'm in Kentucky, on the border with Indiana. Kentucky and Indiana, most parts of Kentucky and Indiana are ideal for growing cows. But it has to be done right. So I would refer you to Joel Salatin. Uh, he's a Virginia farmer who, uh, you know, just look up Joel Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N. He has some good material on how cows can be part of carbon sequestration, how, you know, how you can rotate your cows from, you know, using electric fences. And by doing it that way, he has five times as many, like there's this figure, cow days per year, like an acre how many cow days per year can that acre support? In his area, the average cow days per acre is 80. In other words, on one acre, you can have a cow there for 80 days per year. He has a system that's 400 cow days per acre. So he can have a cow on an acre 400 days out of the year. So that doesn't quite work out mathematically, but you can have more than one cow on that acre, but it's not the same acre all the time. You move them along. You, you use your electric fences to, okay, cows are here one day, and then they're in another place the next day, and another place the next day. And when you do that, the cows fertilize the ground, they eat the, um, they eat the grass, they fertilize the ground, they trample their manure into the ground, and then you leave the ground alone, you let the birds, you let the chickens and the other birds come behind it, and uh, the chickens and the other birds eat some of the parasites and the, and the seeds and the, the insects that the cows leave behind, and that's the way it works in nature. It's very productive, and it even can be a, an important role to play in carbon sequestration. So what do I mean by carbon sequestration? It means allowing the grass to absorb carbon from the atmosphere and then letting the roots grow deep. And when that grass absorbs carbon from the atmosphere and puts it into its roots and it grows deep, then that stores carbon in the soil and the soil becomes very rich for growing more grass. So cattle can be part of a thriving ecosystem but not if you're west of the Mississippi, not if you're in the dry lands out west. It's 
one big mistake we make in the United States is allowing a few bozos to grow cattle where cattle aren't supposed to grow and they do it at our expense on our public lands. So that's why the author here, Timothy Wise, is saying that the unsustainability of meat production is right here in the United States. It has little to do with how meat is grown in other places in the world. Item number nine, another thing that's wrong with the way agriculture is done here in the United States, another thing that's wrong with industrialized agriculture, that it, it makes money, and, but it doesn't produce nutritious food, and it doesn't provide very much economic op opportunity for your average farmer or your average family farm. But item number nine, according to one recent report, the top 20 global livestock conglomerates together emit more greenhouse gases than Germany, Canada, Australia, than the United Kingdom, or France. In other words, the top 20 livestock businesses, uh, for example, I would think that Smithfield Foods is included in this list, the top 20 global livestock conglomerates together emit more greenhouse gases than Germany, Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom or France. These are major industrialized countries. Put one, two, three, four, five of them together. These five countries don't emit as much greenhouse gases as the top 20 global livestock conglomerates. It's not strictly because they're raising animals. It's because they're raising animals in a way that is extremely irresponsible. Item number 10, any future-oriented response to the food crisis would need to address these resource-consuming trends. So we have all these resource-consuming trends uh, represented by the fact that we you know, we till too much, we allow too much soil erosion. That need not be the case. You can have a productive farm without tilling everything. We use too much synthetic fertilizer. Uh, we do, you do not need to use synthetic fertilizer uh, on a uh, productive farm. We have a whole slew of new farmers today that are learning how to work with the living soils so as to produce healthy foods productively without the use of synthetic fertilizers. Too much of these synthetic fertilizers end up in the waterways. Uh, too much of these synthetic fertilizers ends up getting into the atmosphere as nitrous oxide. The way we do farming on an industrial scale involves the use of insecticides and herbicides. You do not need insecticides or synthetic herbicides in order to, to, to have a productive farm. And if you get rid of these things, there are ways, you know, there's a whole new breed of farmers who are interested in farming ecologically and organically and productively. We need to, and most of them are small, farms. We, we should have, you know, two to three hundred acres is about the most that you can handle on an ecologically responsible family farm. So we need to be giving farms, to, we need to be dividing up these huge farms 
and giving them on favorable financial terms to farmers that want to take 100 acres or 200 acres or 250 acres and using it to sustainably, responsibly grow local food. One way that we could do that is by giving everybody a universal basic income and uh, Medicare for all so that those so that you have a cushion and you don't have to scrape and scrounge for every single penny that you get and you don't have to live your life in fear of having some disease that is going to make you bankrupt. It need not be that way and the fact that we're making everybody scramble around and scrounge around for every penny that they earn. Meanwhile, the, the big money is just making off with everything that matters, including the natural world. It need not be that way. We need to make way for local farms and small farmers. So let's see what the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, has to say about agroforestry. So agroforestry is a way, you know, agro as in agriculture and then forestry as in trees. So you're using trees in agriculture when we talk about agroforestry. And it has five items here that are all farming systems or farming practices that involve the use of trees. We need to encourage this and the, uh, the Biden climate plan Hardly, it doesn't say anything about this. doesn't say anything really. I mean, it uses the phrase small family farms, but just because you use the phrase small family farms doesn't mean you know what a small family farm is or what it should be or how we can help small family farms thrive while they're uh, you know, growing food sustainably, growing healthy, nutritious, tasty, local food, sustainably. So these agroforestry farming systems and practices include alley cropping, forest farming, silvopasture, riparian forest buffers, and windbreaks. So let's go to rural America and let's go to these places where you see lots and lots of tillage, lots and lots of uh, corn and soybeans, and say, how can we change this around just a little bit so that farmers are still making good money, but they are small farmers, they are growing crops and livestock sustainably? So item number one over agroforestry farming systems and practices, according to the USDA, U.S. Department of Agriculture, alley cropping means planting crops between rows of trees to provide income while the trees mature. In other words, you're planting trees. Trees start small. They take a while to grow. So while, uh, while your trees are growing, you're going to plant crops in between. Maybe they're tomatoes. Maybe they're squash. Maybe they're beans. Maybe it's corn. But you're going to plant rows of crops between the trees. And then while those trees are growing, they are absorbing carbon. Whenever trees are growing, they are absorbing carbon. Whenever trees are allowed to grow, they provide habitat for bees, butterflies, and birds. 
So it says this system that's called alley cropping can be uh, designed to produce fruits, vegetables, grains, flowers, herbs, bioenergy feedstocks, and more. So what you've got is trees growing in between your row crops. So what are some advantages of this? What are some advantages of incorporating trees into your, uh, into your farming practices? One is carbon sequestration, because when trees grow, they absorb carbon. One is water management. So trees tend to absorb water when the rain comes down instead of letting all the rain run into the, uh, the, the, the sewer systems or the, uh, you know, the, uh, the gullies and so forth. Another advantage of this system called alley cropping is biological diversity. Instead of having one crop, as far as the eye can see, you have a diversity of crops. You have trees that maybe they're apple trees, maybe they're pear trees, maybe they're cherry trees. Maybe they're walnut trees, maybe they're hazelnut trees, maybe they're chestnut trees. But whatever they are, you have, an, a, you have a fighting chance of having biological diversity. Another advantage of this system that we're calling uh, alley cropping is uh, local economy. You have, um, you have crops to sell in your local economy. So that's good for the local economy. You know, agribusiness has taken places like Iowa and Illinois and taken towns and turned them into ghost towns. There's nobody there because there's not a good local economy. The crops are sold to worldwide commodities dealers instead of being sold into the local economy. You know, what is the best use of our farmland if not growing local food for local people? What else are we going to use our farmland for? Are we going to use our farmland to grow soybeans for, so that it can be made into lecithin, which is a, an emulsifier and increases the shelf life for chocolate bars? Is that the best use of our local farmland? We're losing 25 million acres a year of farmland to erosion. Let's have a system that reduces erosion and increases biological diversity and provides something for the local economy. So let's look a little bit more at alley cropping. It says alley cropping is defined, this is on the USDA website, alley cropping is defined as the planting of rows of trees and or shrubs to create alleys in which agricultural or horticultural crops are produced. The trees may include valuable hardwood veneer or lumber species, fruit, nut or other specialty crop trees and shrubs, desirable softwood species for wood fiber production. So generally speaking, agriculture can produce food, fuel, fiber, and medicines. And there's an opportunity to produce a real diversity of foods, fuels, fibers, and medicines, a diversity of, uh, of products to be sold into the local or regional economy. Wouldn't that be a better use of our farmland than what we've got going on now, which is one crop, as far as the eye can see, that is in turn sold to a worldwide commodities dealer who's going to lowball you, who's going to drive you out of business because they get to set the price. 90% of farmers, of, of, of dairy farmers in Wisconsin, have to sell their milk to Dean Foods. So if, if you're... If 90% of the milk is being sold to Dean Foods, guess who sets the price for milk? It's not you, it's Dean Foods. Do we want 
farmers to be, uh, you know, slaves to such a system. Joel Salatin calls it a modern form of feudalism. Instead, we can have, you know, local economies that are driven by local agriculture that provide nutritious, healthy, tasty, local food, as, as well as, you know, fuels and fibers for crafts and stuff. Did you know that diesel engines were originally designed for um, vegetable oil? So vegetable oil could be a, uh, you know, a product, an agricultural product that is sold locally or regionally. And wouldn't that be great, you know, assuming that we reduce our tractors and our combines but to the tune of 90%. We don't have to manufacture all these new machines all the time. So on the few machines we have left, we can see that some of them are fueled by locally produced fuel. So let's look at the next agroforestry farming system, which includes, uh, it's called forest farming operation. Forest farming operations grow food, herbal, botanical, or decorative crops under a forest canopy, canopy that is managed to provide ideal shade levels as well as other products. Forest farming is also called multi-story cropping. So what is meant by multi-story cropping? Well, when the sun shines, is it, you know, let's say you have a field of corn. The sun shines on that field of corn as if it's a flat sheet of paper. And, and that field of corn doesn't even really sprout until sometime in June. And it's, you know, knee high by the 4th of July. So, so the 4th of July is two weeks after the longest day of the year. So you have all of this sun shining. And if the sun is shining on trees, then those trees and bushes get to capture the sun for, you know, ever since their leaves come out early in the spring. But annual crops like corn don't do that. If it's corn, if it's soybeans, it just, you know, it captures the sun's energy starting sometime in June. And it's really not making good use of that photosynthesis. So if you have the, the, the solution to that in part is, yes, you're going to have some annual crops, but you're also going to have some tall trees, some short trees, some bushes, and some, uh, some crops that are closer to the ground. And collectively, they all capture a whole lot more of the sun's rays. So we're talking about regenerative agriculture, and this is very important because, you know, it, it's extremely important for climate. I mean, agriculture such as it is, is one of the main drivers of climate change. And yet, what do you hear, you know, the, Joe Biden and his staff talking about its solar power and wind power and electric vehicles? You know, all that stuff is a way for Wall Street to make money while pretending to solve the climate crisis. Meanwhile, if we continue with these just destructive and insane and uh, agricultural practices, then we weren't, we're not going to win this game. We're not going to win this game if we don't treat our forests right and if we don't do our farming right. That's how we're going to win the game of climate change. That's how we're going to win the game of biodiversity because we treat our forests right. We treat our uh, our farmers right, we do our farming right, we treat our waterways right, and we get away from this insane war machine, which is a whole other conversation. 
but we're talking about regenerative farming. So let's go to the third item, silvopasture. So silvopasture, the word silvo comes from like, for, the word silvo means forest, and silvopasture means kind of like a pasture in the forest. So pasture refers to grazing animals. So we're talking about grazing animals in the forest. So it says silvopasture combines trees with livestock and their forages on one piece of land. The trees provide timber, fruit, or nuts, as well as shade and shelter for livestock and their forages. The forages is a place where livestock grazes. And all this reduces the stress on the animals from the hot summer sun, cold winter winds, or a downpour. So the animals actually have shelter. You know, <laughs> what we don't know is that, you know, cows like trees. Cows like to sit under the shade of a tree, but most cow cattle fields, they don't have any trees. So instead of having one farm that's just grass and cattle, as far as the eye can see, we're going to have some trees in that field. We're going to let trees provide shade for the cattle. The trees might even provide food for the cattle. Certainly, if you have goats or pigs, goats or pigs like the things that fall from trees. They like pears, they like apples, they like nuts. Plus, you know, if you're concerned about animal cruelty, as I certainly am, a silvopasture is a place where animals can live a good life. Plus, if you have silvopasture, then you have habitat for bees, you have habitat for butterflies, you have habitat for birds. The birds, butterflies, and bees can eat from the trees that you have, you know, bees and butterflies. For one thing, trees are great shelter for butterflies. For another thing, trees can provide blossoms that bees can live on, and while they pollinate the, the trees and make them more productive, Trees, of course, are a place where birds can make nests, and uh, trees are a place where birds can find insects to eat, not least of all caterpillars. So if you're going to have trees, you're gonna, uh, if they're native trees, then you're going to have some caterpillars on those trees. Those caterpillars are vital for our bird populations because birds are feeding themselves and their young on those caterpillars during the spring. That's a vital part of the life cycle of a bird. So let's see what the else they've got here under agroforestry, farming systems and practices. We've talked about alley cropping, we've talked about forest farming, we've talked about silvo pasture. Now, riparian forest buffers. So a riparian buffer is simply a place where you plant things along the stream. It's a place where vegetation is allowed to grow along a stream or a river. And the advantage oh, has many advantages. For one thing, you know, there's no better place for wildlife than a waterway. Of course, not all wildlife lives near a waterway, but most wildlife needs water. And, you know, you're just going to have more biological diversity along a stream or a river. So what we want to do is to plant trees and bushes and wildflowers, preferably native trees, bushes and wildflowers along that stream so as to provide habitat for the wildlife, so as to provide filtration for the water. 
And so here's what the USDA has to say about riparian for, and that's what riparian refers to. Riparian is a is an adjective that refers to something that's alongside a stream. So a riparian forest buffer is a, you know, it's a, it's a place where you allow thick vegetation to grow along a stream, creek, or river. So as riparian forest buffers are natural or reestablished areas along rivers and streams made up of trees, shrubs, and grasses. These buffers can help filter farm runoff while the roots stabilize the banks of streams, rivers, lakes, and ponds to prevent erosion. These areas can also support wildlife and provide another source of income. So did you know that like half of fish protein is derived from insects? If you're going to have fish in a river or stream, that, uh, and if that fish provides food for people or bald eagle, eagles which eat fish, if those fish provide food for anything, then they're going to have that food insofar as you have native plants on which insects can thrive and then the insects can provide food for frogs and, 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 and then, you know, and then the fish. So anyway, a lot of good things can be done, but we need to get away from this idea that there's only one way to do industrialized agriculture and we need to get to regenerative farming. There's lots of good ideas. Lots of things that we can't that can be done, but farmers need our support, and we need to support a new breed of farmer that is interested in regenerative farming. That's all the time we have. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day.